0: Welcome to eBible Fellowship's Sunday Bible Study. For broadcast times in your area of these studies, visit our website at www.ebiblefellowship.com. And now it's time to begin our Sunday study with your speaker, Chris McCann. Good afternoon and welcome to eBible Fellowship's Sunday afternoon Bible Study. Today we'll be studying Jeremiah chapter 50 and this will be study number 10. And we're going to be looking at verse 16. Jeremiah 50, verse 16. Cut off the sower from Babylon and him that handleth the sickle in the time of harvest for fear of the oppressing sword. They shall turn everyone to his people and they shall flee everyone to his own land. And we started to look at this verse in our last study in Jeremiah 50 we um, only were able to look at the very first part of the verse that says, Cut off the sower from Babylon, and him that handleth the sickle in the time of harvest. And we saw uh, how that this is referring to the Lord Jesus Christ. The possibilities are that it's speaking of the sowing process, because we we do know that God has ended uh, His sowing program, or to say it another way, His evangelization program. God is no longer sending forth the gospel in order that people hear and become saved, and the Bible likens that process to sowing seed, and uh, the Lord. Jesus Christ gives us a parable in the New Testament, where uh, He speaks of the sower. And let me turn to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew 13, and in, in the parable um, of the wheat and the tares, and we're we're given the explanation in verse 37. He answered and said unto them. He that soweth the good seed is the son of man. He that soweth the good seed, the gospel, the word of God, and the seed falls upon the hearts of men. And then with some, it cares of this life come up and the seed is no good. And with others, Satan comes and snatches it away. But the one that does the sowing, is the Son of Man, and the Son of Man is Jesus Christ, and He is the Sower. There is the Lord Jesus, who is behind the gospel effort to bring His Word to the world. Remember when the Bible tells us concerning those that bring glad tidings of good news. In one place which would be um, Romans chapter 10. Here's how God puts it. Romans 10 and verse 15. And how shall they preach except they be sent as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. So there uh, it's speaking of God's people that go forth or went forth with the gospel into the world at God's beckoning to preach the things that he would have them to say. Now, in the book of Isaiah, uh, really, which Romans 10 is referring to, it reads slightly different. In Isaiah 52, verse 7, it says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him! that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace, that bringeth good tidings of good, that publisheth salvation, that saith unto Zion, Thy God reigneth. Do you notice the difference? Romans 10.15 says, How beautiful are the feet of them. And Isaiah fifty two seven does not say them, but it says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him. And that's because... Christ is behind the sending forth of his people. Now, which of us would, of ourselves, go forth carrying the message of the gospel in the day of salvation when it was still possible and subject ourselves to ridicule and and affliction and tribulation that association with the gospel brings? Well, none of us would do it of ourselves, it was God working in us to will and do of his good pleasure. And therefore it was Christ who was doing this. And yet it's also true that he used his people as an instrument and, and therefore both statements are true. The true believers go forth. How beautiful are the feet of them and Yet, it is Christ that actually is going forth. How beautiful are the feet of him. He is the sower, the the mover of his people, the one who is behind every earnest and sincere and true and faithful effort to get the gospel out to the world it was the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the sower and And there is no other. And that's why it's using the definite article. And in Isaiah 50, verse 16, we read something horrifying and terrible if we understand it as God would have us to understand it. And again, how are we to read these statements? You know, we're reading the book of Jeremiah. And and God is speaking of judging Babylon for the vengeance of his temple. And so we we read, cut off the sower from Babylon. And then we just follow the words. We follow the types and figures, the parabolic methodology that the Bible instructs us to follow. As we read that Christ spoke in parables and without a parable he did not speak and he is the word made flesh. And obviously he spoke in parables without a parable he did not speak for a reason to teach us how to understand the Bible. This verse is very obvious. It, It is extremely obvious what God is saying. Cut off the sower from Babylon means the Lord Jesus Christ will be cut off from this world. The sower is Christ. Babylon points to this world. Once we follow these words and see their spiritual meaning, it again is teaching us that it is God's plan to end his salvation for this world at the time of the end of the great tribulation, when transition is made to judgment day, and so we share this, and people here, and it doesn't register, it doesn't register a teaching about Christ being cut off from the world from the Book of Jeremiah. All oh, those people, the ones at E Bible Fellowship, they're just throwing anything out there, and and yet if you asked, these people, well, you tell me what it means. You tell us what the the book of Jeremiah and and, uh, this teaching of Babylon means. They don't have any idea. You ask the people in the churches and congregations what uh, much teaching of the Bible means and Ezekiel and Daniel and Isaiah and, and just all over the Bible. What does it mean? You understand it literally. You can tell me, the history of the situation. You can tell us maybe or glean a moral teaching or two, but what does it mean? Is that its only purpose? Is that why it's in the Bible as filler until we get to the New Testament gospel accounts where finally uh, you are able to teach the gospel? Well, no. Remember, God says the gospel was preached to them as well to us. And that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine. And it's not just the New Testament. It's just not those passages that are, uh, so, well, they're not really all that straightforward and plain. God is hidden truth in the New Testament as well, but that's where people think they understand the gospel and they just leave. They just leave. Huge portions of the Old Testament, untouched, unanalyzed, uh, unsearched, and and they leave it because their methodology is wrong. The plain literal teaching of the Word of God is wrong. When they teach it, it's dull, it's boring, it's dead. There's no life to the teaching. Of just looking at the history and gleaning a moral thought or two. Where is the meat? Where is the nourishment for the, the child of God, for the reader in that kind of gospel? There isn't any. It'll put you to sleep. And that's why they don't teach it. They know that they see their congregation nodding off whenever they go in that direction. And yet all scripture is given for the purpose of teaching the gospel, the spiritual gospel, the truth of the word of God. And here God is making an extremely important statement, and yes, he's hiding it. He's couching it in in this picture, this historical picture of the destruction of Babylon after Babylon has destroyed Judea. And, and we know what that is pointing to. Satan, he's likened himself to the king of Babylon and his kingdom to Babylon comes against the church, destroys the churches as the man of sin for 23 years. And then he is destroyed. His kingdom is destroyed by God. And what is the judgment? Cut off the sower from Babylon, the Lord Jesus. And it goes on to say, Him that handleth the sickle in the time of harvest. Now, it was the sower, and now it's not them. It doesn't say them that handleth the sickle, but him. Because it's one and the same person. And again, this is not referring to the process of harvest. The process of sowing or the process of uh, handling the sickle. It's referring to the person. The person is cut off from Babylon. And the Lord Jesus has cut off himself from this world. There is no light of the sun, the Bible tells us. No light of the moon. And the stars have withdrawn their shining. The light of the gospel It has been removed. The voice of the bridegroom and of the bride shall be heard no more at all in thee. Because the sower and him that handleth the sickle, both referring to Jesus Christ, have been cut off from her. Well, it doesn't mean where it says in Revelation 18, The voice of the bridegroom and of the bride shall no more be heard in her that God's people will not be speaking that's what we're doing that's what we've been doing for almost um for quite some time since May 21 2011 we have continued to speak and we speak uh, over the internet well anybody could hear that speaking into this world we're God's people we are the bride of Christ, who is the bridegroom, and we're speaking his word. So doesn't that mean the bridegroom and the bride are still speaking? Well, let me read that in Revelation 18, because it doesn't say that they won't speak. It says in Revelation 18, in verse 23, And the light of a candle shall shine no more at all in thee, and the voice of the bridegroom and of the bride shall be heard no more at all in thee. Now think about that. The voice of Christ and the voice of his people who would share the truth of the word of God will be heard no more at all in thee. That is, the hearing is the problem. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. But when God brought judgment on the churches, he tells us in Amos chapter 8 and verse 11, there is a famine of hearing in the land. That is, the churches still had the Bible. They could have even had a preacher get up and preach some faithful message from the Bible. And yet, the congregation would not have been blessed because the Holy Spirit was cut off from the churches. The Holy Spirit came out of the midst, and it takes the Holy Spirit to apply the word preached. And so when that faithful sermon was preached from the King James Bible, and everything was wonderful, everything was faithful and true to the word of God. And if that message had been preached 50 years earlier, certainly individuals in the congregation would have been blessed by it. But unfortunately, it was being preached at the time when God began judging the churches, and he abandoned them, his spirit removed himself from their midst, and therefore... It had no effect. It was of no value. It was a vain, empty effort of sharing the gospel because no one became saved. No one's spiritual condition was changed. And that's what it means, that the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride shall be heard no more at all in thee. God has cut off himself from this world, from Babylon, and him that handleth the sickle. Now let's just look at Revelation 14, and we'll see reference to him that handleth the sickle. In the day of judgment, it says in verse 14, And I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and upon the cloud one sat like unto the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. So there is the Son of Man, one like unto the Son of Man, who has a sharp sickle. And verse 15, And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him that sat on the cloud, Thrust in thy sickle and reap, for the time has come for thee to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So the Lord Jesus is the one that handleth the sickle in the time of harvest. And again, we're not making it up. We didn't make these connections. You know, that's what people fail to understand because they don't want to understand it. They don't put in the time to understand it. They don't seriously study the Bible at all. It's all superficial with them. They just want to be able to... Make their statements of the Bible and, uh, with, without, um, interference. They, they, they don't want anyone correcting them and, and they don't, if they don't like something, they'll just shoot it down and, and they certainly don't like the idea of God judging the world on May 21, 2011, but they're not earnest Bereans to search these things out to see if it's so. And, and what can you do? Well, we can't do anything. It's God who moves within his people. And it's God who will have his people once they hear search the Bible to see if it's so, in a very positive way, their minds are open to what God might teach them. But that's not the case with those that are not God's people They will not search the Bible to see if something's so. If they search the Bible, and and many do, it will be to show how it's not so. They will have a negative intent. They will search the Bible with an eye and an ear, searching for anything that might disagree. Searching for anything that they can use to counter as though it's some sort of fight and battle and they have their point and they must destroy the opposition's point like a debate. And that is not how we search the Bible. God is is going to allow people to do that and may actively assist them in going down that wrong road, but we are not to search the Bible that way if we hear something that is, first of all, it's using the Bible, a teaching that is using the Bible only, a ministry that uses the Bible only and recognizes there is not to be any addition or subtraction from the Bible, but God's word only. And a ministry that also recognizes how God wrote the Bible, that there is spiritual truth, and we must search it out. And a ministry that compares Scripture with Scripture and takes the time to make sure conclusions harmonize together, this kind of ministry, at least, at the very minimum, ought to be listened to or ought to have the one who is Hearing what that ministry is teaching, at least have or put in the effort of a noble Berean to search it out to see if it's so. And there's no excuse for not doing that. And when people just write it off and and say, oh, I won't listen, I won't listen to them, I won't listen to that, they have their minds made up and they are not doing what God would have his people to do when it comes to investigating doctrine, investigating things that are put forth from the word of God. Well, all right, let's go back to verse 16. Cut off the sower from Babylon, and him that handleth the sickle in the time of harvest. Now, that's a very interesting statement. It is just amazing, actually, that God is describing the judgment of Babylon. He has been going into detail already. He'll go into much more detail concerning his judgment upon Babylon for the vengeance of his temple And as we've seen, Babylon represents the world in the day of judgment. And so, there is an association being made here between Babylon and harvest. Cut off the sower from Babylon and him that handleth the sickle. When is that to happen? In the time of harvest. And... If we go to that same parable in Matthew 13, parable of the wheat and the tares, we read verse 37 that spoke of the one that sows the seed, the good seed is the son of man. Well, as it continues, as Christ continues to explain the parable, it says in verse 38, the field is the world, The good seed are the children of the kingdom, but the tares are the children of the wicked one. The enemy that sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the world, and the reapers are the angels. Notice that statement. The harvest is the end of the world. Now, we've been pointing out and proving often as we've been going through Jeremiah 50, that Babylon represents the world under judgment. And Isaiah 13 is probably the best proof text where it begins in verse 1, the burden of Babylon, and then God starts talking about punishing the world. It is a definite reference to Judgment Day. And then he goes back to speaking of Babylon. It is the Judgment Of this world, the destruction, the fall of Babylon is pointing to Judgment Day and what happens or what does God liken Judgment Day to? The end of the world. Harvest. The harvest is the end of the world. So we find this reference with to Babylon and harvest. Now let's look at some other Interesting things concerning harvest. For instance, in Genesis chapter 45, and again, this is, this must be understood parabolically or spiritually, and in order for anyone to understand spiritual things, they themselves must be spiritual. Anyone not saved does not have a spiritual mind, they don't have the Spirit of God within, and so they naturally they lean, they move in the direction of carnal understandings. They understand the Bible naturally, plain, literal statements. And, and if it's not a plain, literal statement, they reject it out of hand. That's a favorite teaching of a natural-minded individual, of course. That's the way their mind runs. That's the way they like their doctrine. That's the way their Theology is established, and yet the only problem is that's the way you'll never understand the Bible. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 2, we must compare Scripture with Scripture, spiritual with spiritual, and then the Holy Ghost teaches. Well, in Genesis 45, we have the historical parable, and that means it's true history history. These things actually happen, but God uses it to teach spiritual meaning. And in this instance, it's the case of Joseph at the time of the grievous famine that occurred, a seven-year famine. And God tells us in Acts 7, and I'll, I'll just read this before we... Look at the verse in Genesis 45. In Acts 7, verse 11, speaking of that same time, Now there came a dearth over all the land of Egypt and Canaan, and great affliction, and our fathers found no sustenance. Now this verse has the statement that there was great affliction. And the the Greek words are identical here, to Matthew twenty-four statement of great tribulation. Those two words together, megas, solipsis, are only found, I think, four times in the New Testament in Matthew 24, in uh, uh, Revelation 2, and Revelation 7, and here in Acts 7. And they always point to the great tribulation period. Therefore, Since God identifies the dearth, the seven-year famine in Joseph's day, as Great Tribulation, he wants us to know that that's exactly what it's picturing spiritually. Well, finally, after concealing himself for the first couple of years of the famine, and please read the account, it's just one of the most dramatic and wonderful accounts in the Bible, and finally, after the first two years, Joseph reveals himself to his brethren. And this pictures, after the first part of the Great Tribulation, God will reveal himself to his people, the elect. And, and once Joseph reveals himself to his brethren, they return to their father Jacob and they all leave the land of Canaan and enter into Egypt to be cared for and nourished by Joseph, that pictures God's people learning the truth once the scriptures have been unsealed and Christ reveals himself to them that they must leave the churches and go into the world. Well, in this setting that Acts seven eleven calls great tribulation, we read in verse 6 of Genesis 45, For these two years... Has the famine been in the land? And yet there are five years. Uh, again, notice how the this famine has broken up. Two years and five years. The most grievous time was the first two years. Which relates to the first part of the Great Tribulation. The 2300 evening mornings. Then there was the latter rain for about 17 years. To total that 23 year Great Tribulation period. How it so happens... Once Joseph reveals himself and his brethren go back to their father Jacob and Jacob enters Egypt at the age of 130 in the year 1877 BC that Jacob will live in Egypt for 17 years and then die at age 147 and that is another reference God is making to the duration of the great tribulation after that dividing point. There are 17 years, and then comes the end of the Great Tribulation. Well, let me just read this in Genesis forty-five twenty-six. For these two years has the famine been in the land, and yet there are five years, in the which there shall neither be earring nor harvest. Now that I never noticed before, but it is teaching us about the seven-year famine. Joseph is telling his brethren, there will be no harvest during the seven years. And how can we relate that? Well, the it typifies the Great Tribulation. Therefore, it's as though Christ is saying there will be no harvest throughout the period of the Great Tribulation. Which implies that at the end of the Great Tribulation... There will be harvest. Now let's look at another verse in Joel. In Joel chapter 3, Joel 3, we read in verse 13, Put ye in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. And remember we saw in Revelation 14, Judgment Day, that Christ is the one handling the sickle. And it mentions the harvest being ripe, just like it does here. Put ye in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, get you down, for the press is full, the fats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Multitudes, multitudes, in the valley of decision, for the day of Jehovah is near, in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon shall be darkened, and the stars shall withdraw their shining. Now, Why did I read this? We see the language of harvest, that it matches perfectly with Revelation 14. And here in Joel 3.13, put in the sickle, the harvest is right. And then it's linked to the sun is darkened. The sun and the moon shall be darkened, and the stars shall withdraw their shining. Now, that we know. From Matthew twenty four twenty nine occurs that that is this language of Joel three fifteen the sun and the moon is, is dark and the stars uh, withdrawing their shining it certainly identifies with Matthew twenty four twenty nine immediately after the tribulation the sun shall be darkened and the moon shall not give her a light and the stars shall fall. You see, what did Genesis 45-6 say? Well, there will be two years that the famine's been already and five more years in which there will not be earring nor harvest. No harvest for the duration of the Great Tribulation. And, and now in Joel 3, put in the sickle. And remember that, that statement in Mark 4, Let me quickly turn there. It's Mark 4, verse 29, where it says, But when the fruit is brought forth, immediately he putteth in the sickle, because the harvest is come. When the fruit is brought forth. When, again, we must understand the Bible on the Bible's terms. God isn't talking about farmers. He's talking about his harvest. He's the husbandman. He's the one that sends the early and latter rain. He's the one that's been patiently waiting for the precious fruit of the earth. And that fruit are those that he has saved. And once he saved them, immediately he puts in the sickle. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun is darkened and the moon does not give its light. And Joel 3... Verses 13 to 15, tie the two ideas together. Put ye in the sickle, for the harvest is right. And verse 15, it uh, joins together at the time the sun and the moon are dark. Immediately after the tribulations when you put in the sickle. Immediately after the tribulation is when the harvest is right. And that agrees with Genesis 45, 6. No harvest. During the great tribulation. The implication is after the great tribulation. Well, now here we have God in Jeremiah 50. And this is very intentional. This is very intentional that God is joining together Babylon's judgment with harvest. Cut off the sower from Babylon and him that handleth the sickle. In the time of harvest. This is not a single reference. We have other places where God has also linked together Babylon with harvest. Let's go to Jeremiah 51 and we'll read verse 33. For thus saith Jehovah of hosts, the God of Israel, the daughter of Babylon is like a threshing floor. It is time to thresh her yet a little while and the time of her harvest shall come. Babylon, the time of her harvest will come. Again, God relates Babylon's fall, Babylon's destruction to harvest. Well, yes, uh, he did it in Jeremiah 50 and Jeremiah 51, but that's um maybe just using a figure of speech you know that that's how people's minds work the natural minded man they don't get it no matter how uh how many times god says it they it, as long as god is saying it in a spiritual way it goes right past them and yet uh, he wants to make sure we get this this is an important point babylon and harvest are, are related. Not only Babylon, but a specific time. Babylon's fall. In Jeremiah 50 verse 15, the verse we looked at last, last week, shout against her roundabout. She has given her hand. Her foundations are fallen. Her walls are thrown down. Then cut off the sower in the time of harvest, from Babylon in the time of harvest. In Jeremiah 51, it says in verse eight, Babylon is suddenly fallen and destroyed. Howl for her! There is other statements concerning Babylon's fall in um, Jeremiah 51, in verse um, verse 49. As Babylon has caused the slain of Israel to fall, so at Babylon shall fall the slain of all the earth. Babylon's fall and we read of harvest in Isaiah chapter 21 in Isaiah 21 it says in verses 9 and 10 and behold here cometh a chariot of men with a couple of horsemen and he answered and said Babylon is fallen is fallen and all the graven images of our gods he is broken unto the ground. O my threshing, and the corn of my floor. Now you'll remember the word threshing relates to harvest. And certainly the corn of my floor does also. That which I have heard of Jehovah of hosts, the God of Israel, have I declared unto you. Again, a third time, God relates Babylon at the point of Babylon's fall to harvest. Oh, my threshing in the corn of my floor. Now, let's go to Revelation 14. And we went here earlier. But now, let's see something very significant. In Revelation 14, the context that we know Revelation 14 deals with Judgment Day. Just look at verse 10. The same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation, and he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever, and they have no rest day nor night, who worship the beast and his image, and whosoever receiveth the mark of his name. And then, Following that, it goes on to speak of harvest, or uses harvest language. We we saw earlier the couple of verses of Christ putting in the sickle. But the context of this language of the cup of God's wrath, of the Lord Jesus putting in the sickle, is established in verse 8 of Revelation 14. And there it says, And there followed another angel, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Do you see it? Do you see what God has done? Again, Judgment Day. There's no question, Judgment Day, not the judgment uh, on the churches, only insofar as judgment began there. And we could say judgment day began therefore at that point, but, but this is the judgment of the world. That's, that's clearly what's in view. This is the judgment of all of the unsaved people of the earth, which would include those in the churches, but this is judgment day and it begins with Babylon's fall. And then we read of harvest in Revelation 14. I didn't read hardly any of what God was saying here. Revelation fourteen fourteen, And I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and upon the cloud one sat like unto the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him that sat on the cloud, Thrust in thy sickle, and reap. For the time has come for thee to reap, for the harvest of the earth is right. And he that sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. And another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, which had power over fire, and cried with a loud cry to him that had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in thy sharp sickle, and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth. For her grapes are fully ripe. And the angel thrust in his sickle into the earth, and gathered the vine of the earth, and cast it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. Do you see the harvest language throughout from verse 14? Verse 14, the Son of Man had a sharp sickle in his hand. Verse 15, the command was given, Thrust in thy sickle, and reap, for the time is come for thee to reap. The harvest of the earth is ripe. Verse 16 said again, Thrust in thy sickle, and again the earth was reaped. Verse 17 mentions a sharp sickle. Verse 18 speaks of a sharp sickle, and, and again, Thrust in thy sharp sickle. Gather the clusters of the vine of the earth for her grapes are fully ripe. In verse 19, the angel thrust in his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and cast into the great winepress of the wrath of God. What an enormous emphasis upon the harvest and upon, or or set in the context of Babylon's fall. Babylon has fallen, has fallen. When did Babylon fall after 70 years. And that 70-year period from 609 BC until 539 BC also is a historical type of the Great Tribulation, exactly like the seven-year famine. And the, the harvest did not come during the 70 years in this figure, but Babylon falls At the point of 70 years, at the point of the end of the Great Tribulation, immediately after the Great Tribulation, the sun is darkened. And Joel 3 says, put in the sickle. You see, God here is putting his finger on May 21, 2011, because that was the day that was exactly the 23rd year, exactly the 8400th day of the Great Tribulation, and exactly the day harvest begins for the world. The day the fruit was ready, so put ye in the sickle. Immediately you put in the sickle, and you begin to gather the fruit. Now, let's look at something else. And this is, I think, incredible. In this context of Babylon's fall... And harvest in Revelation 14. We read in verse 20. And the winepress was trodden without the city. And verse 19. All that the Lord Jesus, the Son of Man, utilizing his sickle, thrusting his sickle, gathering the vine of the earth, casting it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. Just as Joel 3, by the way, where it speaks of the vats overflowing, that, that's a wine press. And here the wine press of God's wrath overflows in verse 20. The wine press was trodden without the city and blood came out of the wine press, even unto the horse bridles by the space of a thousand and six hundred furlongs. Sixteen hundred furlongs. And where do we find this reference to 1,600 furlongs? It is couched, it is cast in the language of, first of all, Babylon's fall and harvest. It is placed as the conclusion of the harvest because Revelation 14 has been describing the harvest as Matthew 13 told us the harvest is the end of the world. Well, there's the Lord Jesus ending the world with his sickle. He's putting it in. He is reaping. He is harvesting. And then it all climaxes. It concludes with his final statement. The winepress was trodden without the city. The blood came out of the wine press, And that is the wicked people. Let me just... Go back to Joel three for a second, in case uh you didn't notice this. In Joel three thirteen, put ye in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, get you down, for the press is full, the fats overflow. And again that would relate to what we're reading in Revelation fourteen, as fats are the same as a wine press. For their wickedness is great. Their wickedness that's who's in the wine press. Uh, I heard one person, I couldn't believe it, say that this has to do with true believers. Absolutely not. There's no possibility of that. That's desperation. People are so desperate to avoid the teaching of God on this point that he has ended his salvation program that they begin to have their own eyes blinded and they begin to lose sight of truth in a desperate attempt to rid themselves Of this grievous teaching of the Bible. And I admit it's a grievous teaching. It's a hard and difficult teaching. Yet it's the true teaching of the Bible. And we cannot ever rid ourselves of the true teaching of the Bible. That's an impossibility. But notice that it's the wicked. And that's who's in the winepress in Revelation 14. The wickedness of the people of the earth is great. Christ throws them in. Their blood comes out. The life is in the blood, and it flows for 1,600 furlongs, which we understand to represent 1,600 days. Now, here is something that is just very exciting and extremely significant, that when we go 1,600 days, when we substitute spiritually days for furlongs, And God allows us to do that. Uh, Genesis mentions a dream of a butler and a baker, and they dreamed of branches and so forth. And God says, well, the three branches are three days. There's other examples in the Bible where God uses various items to represent time and time references. And so we have biblical authority That God has set biblical precedent. It's much like lawyers, you know, they're always speaking of precedent. If there was a case that establishes precedent, then it's legitimate, and they can therefore argue along those lines. Well, we have biblical precedent with God previously in the Bible, relating items that are not time references themselves to time. And here, we substitute 1,600 days for 1,600 furlongs, and we know from the 8,400 days of the Great Tribulation, when you add 1,600, it forms a perfect 10,000 days and completes the judgment of God. That's, of course, a, a big point in itself. But also, if we go 1,600 days from May 21, 2011... Babylon's fall, the end of the Great Tribulation. The point of Babylon is fallen, is fallen. And the beginning of harvest, as God speaks of Babylon's fall in Jeremiah 50, in Jeremiah 51, in Isaiah 21, in connection with harvest. So harvest begins on May 21, 2011 at Babylon's fall. The language of the Lord Jesus putting in the sickle commences and continues for 1,600 days. And what is that 1,600th day? What is the 10,000th day or the 1,600th day? Let's stay focused on that. From May 21, 2011, what happens 1,600 days later? It is the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. We know that. October 7th and 2015. Yes, but we do not focus as much on the fact that the Feast of Tabernacles was held in conjunction with, simultaneously with, the Feast of Ingathering. It says in Exodus 23, Exodus 23 and verse 16. And the feast of harvest, the first fruits of thy labors, which thou hast sown in the field, and the feast of ingathering. He had two harvests, the first fruits, they were part of the harvest, and the fruit that comes in at the end during the feast of ingathering. And they're all part of the feast of harvest. But in particular, ingathering is that feast that identifies with Matthew 13, Uh, Verse 39 statement. The harvest is the end of the world. And so the feast of ingathering is the feast of harvest. As it says in Leviticus 23. In verse 34. Speak unto the children of Israel. Saying the fifteenth day of the seventh month shall be the feast of tabernacles for seven days. We know that. Then again in verse 39. Of Leviticus 23, also in the fifteenth day of the seventh month, when ye have gathered in the fruit of the land, ye shall keep a feast unto Jehovah seven days. On the first day shall be a Sabbath, and on the eighth day shall be a Sabbath. The language for the Feast of Ingathering is identical to the language for the Feast of Tabernacles, which means that everything... We understand about tabernacles, the timing, the duration, and so forth. Also is true of the Feast of Ingathering, or it could be called the Feast of Harvest. And it is a time when the fruit is gathered in. Exodus 34.22 says, And thou shalt observe the Feast of Weeks of the first fruits of Wheat Harvest, And the feast of ingathering at the year's end. Deuteronomy 16 also says the same thing in Deuteronomy 16 in verse 16. Three times in a year shall all the male, all thy males appear before Jehovah thy God in the place which he shall choose in the feast of unleavened bread and the feast of weeks and the Feast of Tabernacles, and they shall not appear before Jehovah empty. There it's mentioned Tabernacles, but it's held in conjunction with ingathering. Therefore, October seventh, 2015, which is the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, is also the last day of the Feast of Ingathering. It is the last day of harvest. And... And now can you see the incredible significance of God giving us that number, that statement in Revelation 14 in the context of Babylon's fall and harvest and, and then we find a number. Oh, it, it just happened to be there. It just happened to be there. Yes, 1,600 fits with 8,400 and forms a perfect 10,000. Yes, 1,600 breaks down to 40 times 40 and would point to severe testing. And yes, it happens to fall on the last day of tabernacles, the last day of harvest, at 1,600 days later, which would indicate the end, the conclusion of harvest. But that's all meaningless. That's all meaningless. No, no, that's not meaningless. That is actually tremendous evidence. That is tremendous evidence that we can have a good hope and a good expectation that on that day... The Lord Jesus Christ who began the final harvest on May 21, 2011, immediately after the tribulation, he put in the sickle and he continues it for 1600 days. And then he ends his harvest on the last day of harvest, 1600 days later, October 7th, 2015. There is an outstanding possibility that that's exactly what God is doing and will do. Thanks for joining us for eBible Fellowship Sunday Bible Study. For more information or to hear additional Bible studies, be sure to visit our website at www.ebiblefellowship.com.